Welcome to this episode of Abstraction, a podcast that with the help of Australia and New Zealand's leading entrepreneurs, investors and experts, breaks down the complexity of emerging tech trends. My name is Hunter Watkin. I'm a tech startup investor at Rampersand, an early stage venture capital firm, and I'm on a mission to learn out in the open with those curious to understand what's currently possible when it comes to emerging technologies and bring to light how people and companies are overcoming the obstacles that lie ahead. The first series of Abstraction focuses on Web3 the much-hyped and sometimes divisive potential next iteration of the internet. Before diving into today's episode, please be aware that nothing expressed throughout constitutes financial advice. Today we hear from Joni Pirovich, a former specialist tax lawyer that now runs a blockchain and digital assets consultancy, as well as leading proposals for regulatory improvement in the space. This episode is particularly valuable for those that are sensibly risk-averse and wanting to understand the extra risks that come with transacting with crypto and tokens. More specifically, it's a must listen for those interested in understanding the current state of regulation and how this might evolve. We cover individual risks when transacting with wallets and exchanges, the different ways people can protect and insure themselves, and talk through why it's more important than ever before for lawyers and builders to work closely together. From wherever you're listening, we hope you enjoy. Joni, thank you very much for joining me for another episode of the Distraction Podcast. I'm thrilled to have you on. I think you're playing one of the more important roles in the ecosystem as someone that's at the forefront of evaluating risk from a legal standpoint. I'd like to start today's episode by learning a bit about your journey into, I guess, going all in on blockchain and digital assets, and then also like to hear a little bit about how the nature of the advice that you give has evolved over time and whether that's changed with reference to how you thought that might play out. Thanks for having me, Hunter. Gosh, it's been a journey and COVID merges the years now. So it's been six or seven, I I suppose, and started out just going down the rabbit hole, heard about these things, Bitcoin and Ethereum, didn't understand it. At that time, there weren't a lot of internet articles or policy papers even to help me understand. So I just had to get in the community, go to the hackathons, go to the meetups, try to find people that did understand what was going on and ask them questions. And that really helped. So what was initially a hobby became a full-time job and more than a full-time job and, and kind of a lifestyle now. It's really hard to separate things. But about three or four years ago, it became 100% of my day job. And I'm a tax lawyer by trade, so naturally it was tax advice, predominantly to individuals, some funds, structuring their fund, and then typical crypto that they might invest either in an early stage or or the more blue chips, if I can call it that, of Bitcoin and Ether. And, and then there was just an explosion around the 2017-2018 ICO boom where it was more that it became more than just tax. It, it was really important to determine if the token was a security or a financial product. So had to learn very quickly what our financial services rules and regulations were and, and worked with some regulatory natives on that front. And then about a year ago or so with NFTs, it became very much IP law and, and creeping through all of that um, structuring and protection against legal risks and tax risks for the the different ways in which you might contribute or get involved in a token project. That became a strong flavor because of DAOs, the desire to be involved in a DAO and individuals 
small to medium companies, funds also wanting more exposure to these tokens coming out of these projects and litigation. So it's already started and mostly on the tax front, but we're seeing more on, on the securities law front. And, and so just managing litigation, you, you're often three to five years in the past. So it's, it's getting all of the documents and evidence that supports your arguments at that time. And then all of the structuring is, you know, present day and thinking about what's going to hold in this emerging policy environment where countries are competing to be the crypto hub of the future. Okay, so you've gone from being a specialist tax lawyer to now covering advice across a breadth of practice areas. And one of the things in your LinkedIn bio, not sure if it's still up, was that Australia needs more lawyers and law firms that are digitally literate. You in your previous job, you know, you're paid by the hour, you're, you're working really hard to make sure that you can fill in those hours. How for lawyers that are thinking about how they can upskill in this area, how do you go about incrementally moving away from that sort of model of work and now starting your own firm where you're covering this breadth of different practice areas? Like, How did you take those steps? Well, I'm more of a project manager now because there's so many legal domains and I choose to work with partner level, senior level lawyers mostly because they understand the legal frameworks and they understand how to interpret what we're seeing now and how broadly we can interpret the existing law and where there is room for policy clarification. So if you look at it in in a typical law firm, you've got reach across all of the different legal domains, but because of the volume of requests coming in, I just thought it's too big for any one law firm. And, and that was one of the reasons that I set up a separate company, my own law firm, so that I could enable the volume of, of things coming in to be spread across multiple different law firms. And I suppose it's the philosophy of blockchain trying to distribute what you're doing. Mm. But I saw in the market that law firms were struggling to build their own blockchain and digital assets expertise. And a lot is to do with the law firm model, even though there's speak and there's some budget and there's appetite for them to be innovative and using legal tech. Often the lawyers still have to meet these daily chargeable hours targets. And I don't know if this is still a thing because when I came through, the more chargeable hours that you did, the more committed you were to the practice and the growth mm-hmm. of the practice. And therefore you were at the top of the charts in having the most chargeable hours. That's the typical pattern of things. But millennials and, and a lot of us now, we're trying to be more purpose driven and we want more than just the client work and more than just one legal tech experiment to tick the box, so to speak, on what the innovation drive of the firm is. And so, I just figured if I had this model, separate law firm, my one rule, and I'm pretty open-minded to everything, is that I don't actually want employees in my company to my own commercial detriment, um, if you're thinking in an immediate mm. profit context, mm. but but empowering lawyers to work on blockchain and digital assets matters, and I help grow them, show them the history of evolution, how we've started to unpack and understand more the legal risks and where the policy environment needs to grow. That grows that digital literacy and the capability across a number of law firms. And I think always an idea is more powerful or a value set is more powerful than any one business empire, so to speak. So I think that's what I'm trying to imbue in the, at least Australian lawyers and legal practices that you can be empowered to grow a brand 
and to fulfill your purpose, yes, you might have to do that outside of your chargeable hours first. Hopefully law firms can start to recognize that they need to encourage their lawyers to have digital wallets, to use the tech, and they can better align with their clients. But it's not a journey I wanted to do from inside a law firm. I wanted to disrupt from the outside. Yeah. And I guess you can scale your impact that way. I think that's Mm. that's really interesting. So obviously you're advising law firms and helping them to advise their clients, but you're also doing everything right down to the individual startup level. So I think it'd be helpful to progress our discussion today, starting at that individual level, then going to the startups, managing people's cryptocurrencies and wallets, and then we'll sort of progress through to to more overarching policy and, and legal change discussion. So I think it'd be great to start around the topic of wallets, which is probably the first thing that people interact with when they are starting off their crypto or Web3 journey. One of the main risks that individuals probably want to be aware of initially from the outset is custodial risk and how that looks depending on whether you're using a certain type of wallet, be it centralized or decentralized. So my question first is what should people think about when deciding where they should I guess, start their crypto journey with storing cryptocurrencies? And then secondly, what should they think about with regard to where they trade and transact with cryptocurrencies? Yeah, I think the word is always do your own research and people say, but how do I do my own research? So from the individual perspective, looking like starting with a Google search and figuring out, okay, if, if I want to hold crypto and trade it, what, what is the best wallet for me to start with? Most would then generally pick MetaMask. Um, you've also got to make sure that you're going to the official website to download the particular wallet because you don't want to be installing corrupt software onto your desktop. Um, so even just talking about that can be scary for individuals because they don't have to face those questions when they turn up to the CBA, Westpac, NAB, ANZ shopfront either physically or digitally, because it's that trusted space already. And even when we talk about wallets and empowering myself to be self-sovereign with my identity, as well as with my assets, the more and more you have in your own control, the more you do get worried about the great responsibility that you're bearing. So I am all for choice. And if I want to make that choice to manage that responsibility on, on my own, I should, you know, and And innovators should be encouraged to provide the wallet functionality as well as the hardware, the cold wallet functionality, to help me do that to the best of my ability. The trouble is it's it's all disaggregated. All of that innovation is is happening quite separately. And we don't have, I suppose, the maturity yet. You could talk to me actually from the VC perspective of whether you're seeing it emerge, of, of who's aggregating the best approaches for your individual cybersecurity and wealth management strategy in crypto. So somebody still that's guiding you through and how to do it, even if you want to do it yourself. So now for the startups, mostly we're seeing that in CFI, DeFi bridges. They are on one end of the spectrum trying to make it very easy for people to have a familiar shopfront experience of you deposit or you contribute your AUD and we'll go off and we'll set up the wallets for you will deploy the crypto into staking or yield products. And you can choose whether you then want to have a wallet created if you want to exit, so to speak, from that scheme and and take delivery of the crypto, or 
you have the easier experience, the familiar experience where all of the crypto is converted and, and what you see and deal with is AUD. So on that side of the spectrum, that, that's where the legal advice and the licensing obligations on the startup can be very heavy because you're getting into managed investment scheme, non-cash payment facilities, even purchase payment facilities in some cases. But the other side of the spectrum is that agency or facilitative approach where they say, this is an algorithm or, or this is a set of protocols that we've tried and tested. These are our mistakes and these are our recommendations based on the mistakes we've made. We're still learning and it's still experimental, but here are our recommendations that you go off and, and follow this path and you can do it yourself. But again, we don't have another market on top of that reviewing or critiquing the education or the agents providing those sort of step of procedures. So there's no litmus test to say, where are the reviews of this person? How much can we trust them even if we follow that process? And so we keep swinging between, do we need a license as that trusted mark uh, or do we need a financial advisor with a license and proper training to get to that level of trust if, if we're getting somebody to aggregate in educational materials what what the best cybersecurity and wealth management path might be. Yeah, I think that if you've got people that are taking away those, the human error risk for individuals, the problem there is that if you've got these institutions or intermediaries in between that are managing people's crypto and then deploying it, they still have an ability to, I guess, exert power, turn things off, which can have significant consequences and are not necessarily representative of an individual's desires on the other end. Um, I guess for that decentralized example, let's say you're, you're relying on a wallet and then you're engaging largely with smart contracts and protocols. When something goes wrong, what does insurance look like? Is there such a thing as insurance for individuals? Is it something that I guess can operate separate to human intervention? And is there also a place for humans to intervene and offer insurance in this space? Yeah, so I think it depends on the type of activity that you intend on engaging in. And so if it is trading, you know, and, and you want to short-term speculate on the, the top 10 or the top 20 or, or whatever your investment thesis or trading thesis is, then there are more and more derivative products coming up where you can hedge your exposure on a short or a long-term basis. I think TracerDAO is one of them. So you, you'll have your initial trading strategy, maybe. And, and then if you want to look at what hedging and derivative strategies you can engage around that, then the likes of TracerDAO and others are popping up. So it's sort of by way of insurance or managing your financial risk, where you can look at those things and make a judgment call on it, what is the stage of the technology is the functionality proven to how many users, to how many billions of dollars worth? Are there any articles out there showing where the protocol or the governance structure has been manipulated or exploited? So just going through that history yourself of can you rely on the functionality and the governance that is there to date? And if there is a smart contract audit report that's available, often uh, you can click through the Block Explorer to find that. That will tell you in plain language or, or close to plain language what the scope of the review was, the risks that have been identified and mitigated or dealt with, what risks remain, and there might be bug bounty programs out there. So that might be a red flag for me. If it's a pretty big risk based on what the function of the protocol is doing, 
even if there's a bug bounty, that would be a source of hesitation for me to engage in the underlying protocol. Can you define what a, a bug bounty is quickly for our listeners? Oh, it encourages white hat hackers. So around the world, there might be many eyes on the code. Uh, if they identify a vulnerability in the code that could be exploited to an attacker's advantage, so siphoning of value or double spending, double creation of value, it, it might manifest in many different ways. Instead of exploiting and taking the proceeds or the value, there's the bug bounty where they can identify the area of vulnerability to a founding team or whoever the, the core contributors are uh, at that point in time and get the bounty for reporting it before it is made public that there was that exploit. So depends on how good the bounty size is compared to the profit available on the exploit. Yeah. So that, I guess that assessment of risk on the individual is quite a high bar, what you've just described. So a consequential question is, is there any sort of way that an individual, let's say they've made the decision to engage in a decentralized way, they're the last point of risk and there's no intermediary that they could rely on. Is there sort of decentralized forms of insurance that you're aware of, like perhaps where there's been an error in the code, a DAO could help them by giving them their crypto back? Mm. And also, is this a space that centralized institutions, traditional insurers can play? I know that I was reading a, a discussion in your Discord. There was a funny name. Um, Kryptonite? I'm not sure if it's an out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Funny name for the for the product. Um, yeah, just interested in whether you have any insights around how insurance might look from those two perspectives. Well, there's. I think the often cited example is Nexus Mutual, yeah. but yeah. it's a different approach to typical insurance schemes yeah. because if I interact with Nexus Mutual, I specify the actual event that I think will go wrong, and yeah. and that defines you know what my premium is, mm. so to speak, mm. to insure against that event. So if I do want to engage um, a, in a staking protocol, it's a liquidity mining scheme, but I'm not mm. sure really if I haven't seen a cybersecurity audit, a smart contract code audit, and, and it looks really good, really want to participate in it, but I think it's high likelihood of getting exploited and I could lose all of my principal, mm. so to speak, and my rewards. Mm. I, I could set that specifically as my event of concern with Nexus Mutual and define what I want to be insured for and get that specific coverage for myself. And then it only pays out if that event occurs. And I think Nexus Mutual, for one of it, has a good track record, even though you might be able to argue it either way if the policy should be paid out. I think mm -hmm. more often than not, they're opting on the side of paying out. But other insurance schemes obviously pool a lot of capital. They rely on a lot of claims not being made. And some insurers have better reputations than others that whether they'll pay out on a claim or how hard they'll fight before they pay out any claim. And also for professional indemnity type coverage, there's multiple heads of, of cover. So that's an easier experience for a person because the insurer is saying these are all the typical things that will go wrong. You don't have to spe specify one particular event. You may pay a higher premium for that privilege and a, a lengthier time with your claim, but maybe that's a more familiar environment which centralised entities will typically wrap together and aggregate and provide that to consumers and they charge the fee. 
a high fee for it. Yeah. So I guess th there's many ways you can ensure and it comes in different forms. Taking a little sidestep, we've touched on DAOs a couple of times throughout the episode. There may be listeners that have come in fresh into this episode and haven't understood at a high level what DAOs are. Are you able to define what they are in principle, but also in substance, like what sort of form they take today? And then also go into where they don't take legal recognized form, um, what this looks like and we'll go into like how liability works when they aren't a limited liability company. Yeah, sure. So DAO is decentralized autonomous organization. And I think of Bitcoin, the Bitcoin protocol and the network that developed around it as the earliest example of a DAO and that sort of blockchain level DAO. By late, I think it was around May 2020, where we had the comp token and that was compounds issue of, of the first, I think it was the first governance token that the world really looked at at the application level. So this was an application built on the Ethereum blockchain. And once we had that, there became a sort of model around application level DAOs and, and relying on that governance token as the connector for the organization. So how to coordinate a model of governance where the governance token is the ticket to express sentiment or to express a vote on the direction of the protocol. The protocol being the coded function. So it might be a money market, it might be lending, it might be borrowing. How we critique or upgrade or modernize the, the functionality of that protocol and decentralized um, has sort of a different meaning at the application level to the blockchain level because for more robust decisions on the, the future direction of your protocol, you might want many, many governance tokens all around the world, but also that are actively involved in the voting of the direction of the protocol or expressing that sentiment. Um, and at the blockchain level though, decentralized or, or what is sufficiently decentralized might be a question of how many independent nodes, or if you're in a proof of work system, how many miners are supporting and, and verifying the network. Then if you get into proof of stake, you know, you've, you've got a different question set again about how many stakers, what's the staking arrangement delegated or more simple. So DAOs is this umbrella term to explain a lot of things. And it's also a buzzword. So people are using it in the wrong context to explain things that already exist. So there are a lot of investment clubs and investment DAOs that are calling themselves as such. But it's really, when you look down to it, just a unit trust where you've got a number of contributors, um, specific capital contribution to invest in a particular thing. Maybe that's NFTs. And there's no attempt to make the process of the investment decisions or managing the investments autonomous. There's no attempt to grow an organization, a decentralized model of governance or, or attract more unit holders to the scheme. And, and so I think that when you look to DAO and you apply it to a number of things that are using that word to describe what they're doing, it, it won't always hold. And equally, there are projects that are using the word DAO where they're marketing to grow a community, but it's within what we call a legal wrapper. So there might 
be a proprietary limited company with a few shareholders, um, directors, as well as employees that that may have raised capital to align around a purpose, building a protocol, uh, you know, pick your activity. And so they may say, we're launching Project X DAO, and this is the NFT or this is the fungible token in order for you to participate in the DAO. But they're treating it as all contained within the activities of the centralized entity. And, and this is getting the market quite confused because they don't know if they're dealing always with an what we call an unwrapped DAO, which is no clear legal entity like a company and not clearly uh, a partnership or an unincorporated association of persons. It's, it's just those bare bones governance token rights. But there is a team of core contributors that are building a protocol. Um, there's a Discord channel where people can contribute to the discussion. And that's sort of the most legal and tax risk where, where you haven't got that clear legal and tax characterization. And, and so some of the more conservative teams still want to have release their token, build out a community, but, but it's not a true DAO because it's, it's still got that legal wrapper. And it's confusing because there's equity in the company as well as tokens on issue and sometimes not a clear conversion strategy on, on how the equity turns into tokens in the community. So if and when we get legal recognition of a DAO, if all of that activity can be split out in a tax effective way and, and effectively that there might be no value left in being an equity holder in that company. So those are the sort of policy questions that we're dealing with at the moment. And the more that the market wants to get involved in DAOs, you know, in the, the true umbrella meaning of that term, the more confusion we get. And we've got to unpack that for both the people involved in the projects and understanding the legal and tax, as well as the individuals that are signing up to be involved in what they're actually getting or what they're exposed to. Yeah, it's interesting. Individuals need to be mindful of DAO's legal structure or lack thereof, particularly individuals that work in financial services. One of the things you and I have discussed before is that if you're an investor or a sophisticated investor, you might be held to a great level of account if something goes wrong within a DAO when compared to an ordinary retail contributor. Are you able to talk to what greater levels of risk might exist for these investors? Yeah, well, I might give an example first. So, so if we go back to the original, well, what was labelled the DAO, it was the first investment club based on the Ethereum network in around 2016. And I think $150 million worth was raised. You contribute ETH into a, a smart contract and then you would receive the DAO tokens. And, and that was a governance token, so to speak, because it gave you an ability to say what investments the DAO could make in various Web3 projects going on. But if you didn't like um, the majority of the decisions, you, you could effectively quit. And that, that ability to quit was what was exploited. And $50 million worth of value was siphoned off before they could turn off that tap or, or before they identified it. And... And this is where, whether you're a sophisticated investor or not, the, the technology was still new. The disclosure was limited. You didn't really know what you were getting into. There was a lot of FOMO. So more people got into it probably than should have and didn't do their research on what their legal rights were. But this is where the community stepped up. And they said, even though code might be law, that the attacker did what was 
may be well within their rights to exploit that code because code is law. The code was there for everybody to have reviewed. If they didn't, and they've they sort of accepted the risk that there was this opportunity to exploit. Um, but this is one of the pieces of litigation that I've had in court for nearly three years now, I think. It's emerging that what people want to protect is the intent of code is law. And, and so it's not this binary argument of code is law versus code of law, where the latter is our existing national and international rules. Um, it's, it's this middle ground of intent of code is law. And that's where we saw the Ethereum classic hard fork play out because the majority of what was the Ethereum community acted to identify the attack, cut it off at the legs, and, and the governance process that had been built in to the, the smart contracts was even if somebody wanted to quit, there was this process, 14 or 20-day process, in which um, they have to wait before their funds could be withdrawn to their individual wallet. And that time period was enough for all of these discussions to have and agree that there needed to be a hard fork. And when that was implemented, that's where we had everybody receiving what they felt like was new cryptocurrency labeled ETC. And the debate that we're having with in this litigation is whether the Ethereum Classic chain is the original chain because it recognized the hackers' ownership of the stolen ETH or whether what we know is the Ethereum chain should be treated as the continued original, but that was the one that the, the majority of the Ethereum community agreed, no, the intent of the code was not to allow someone to take value like that. So from the, the point that the hard fork was implemented, everybody who had invested, deposited ETH in the DAO were able to effectively exchange their DAO tokens to, to restore their ETH balance as it was before they invested. Now this happened, maybe there were legal arguments against the developers or back to the Ethereum Foundation for letting this sort of project run. Um, but I, I haven't seen any of those pieces of litigation be initiated in court. The only reason we're in court is we're arguing on the legal and tax treatment of the hard fork for a taxpayer. And it's as between the taxpayer and the commissioner of taxation. But the law is there. there. There may have been arguments that could have been run. Don't know clearly against whom. But the, again, the community acted. The norm was formed that they, the majority wanted to support intent of code was law. And we had the hard fork. And, and so most people were given what would have been a legal remedy of rectification. They were put into the position before the exploit occurred. And, and things are still running. We're, we've still got the Ethereum chain continuing people continuing to invest in syndicate DAOs and other application level things um, we just haven't had that same level of size attack at the application level um, to initiate another hard fork and another test case on code of law versus intent of code of law versus um, code is law yeah I think I want to break down the principle that intent of code is law i think invariably code will always have issues and there'll be needs to iterate and shortcomings will arise so that traditional legal framing of intent of code is law is necessary i guess the challenge is how do these projects and organizations gain legal recognition such that you can have the right sort of liability accruing to responsibility holders within the organization and how do these dispute mechanisms work, whether it be through lawyers within decentralized networks that are called upon on an as needed basis, 
or whether the traditional court system will always play the role that it does where it steps in. It seems that when you kind of need these quick outcomes, but that a bit of discretion is necessary, the lag with traditional court systems is probably not going to be suitable. So interested in how you think this might play out in terms of, I guess, modes of dispute resolution. Well, so complaints management and dispute resolution is not a policy that features in an initial model of decentralized governance. I think it should. And and it goes back to your original question to me, you know, Joni, why do, do law firms and lawyers need to be more digitally literate? I think it's because we need we need more of them as part of these founding teams. Even if they're not in the capacity as the general counsel or the lawyer, they're the storytellers of what law has tried to codify as right and just in our society. And, and I, I'm even calling myself a, a storyteller more than a lawyer these days because in the work with DAOs, you're trying to say, this is how the Corporations Act has evolved to manage this kind of bad behaviour. It doesn't necessarily hold in terms of applying it to the values of this particular DAO, what they're trying to automate. But there's sometimes rough analogies that you can draw and you can say, well, this has been the experience and this is why the law was brought in. Use that and, and how does that inform you in designing the code or, or what models of governance need to be put around that code that suits the values or what kind of innovation you're trying to bring and the community you're trying to gather? And, and you can have an initial expression of that, but this is why DAOs need freedom to evolve, that, that you need to encourage the thought to change that model if it's, if it's not quite right or if the community evolves themselves and wants something different. I think my main takeaway from that is that more than ever before, lawyers can't sit, I guess, a a degree of separation away from technical people. Like, I think more than ever before, there's a need for lawyers to sit alongside and work with, because I don't think that either can do the job they need to if DAOs are going to actually function without each other. Mm. Um, so in terms of your contribution, like it, it extends beyond just advising clients, like you're at the forefront of pushing for policy change. And sometimes I'm sure it feels not necessarily isolating. Like I feel like you're definitely gathering troops around you. Um, I, I see many really capable minds within your discord, just testing ideas and, and lawyers included, which I think is something that in terms of my preconceptions about going into a career in the law, I thought everyone very much hoarded information and only shared it within their firm. But really interesting part of this space is people are sort of testing their learnings in the open. So interested to hear about some of the voluntary submissions you've been making in conjunction with not only lawyers, but people that are building in the space, both at the individual level, so for individual and consumer protections. And then after that, I guess more around legal recognition of DAOs, why that's so important. Mm. Well, from, from the early legal and tax advice, we were writing it up and, and then obviously the disclaimers that this is a really broad interpretation of the law, which may not hold. And so it might go into areas of policy, um, you know, for, for clarity on, on where this should actually land, you know, whether it's taxable or not taxable, for example. And so because we were getting to those conversations a lot at the end of the advices, I just thought, we need to communicate it more to the regulators and, and to the policymakers. So uh, around the time, uh, 2019, I think Treasury 
released their ICO consultation review and OECD had their base erosion and profit shifting consultation ongoing and they were starting to focus on the digital economy. But the way that they had defined the digital economy was the Facebooks and the Googles. You know, Web3 wasn't even on the radar at that stage. But I put a submission in to both um, and said, this is where we're going. Um, can we think about auto-taxing at the protocol level to simplify taxes? Because with the number of microtransactions, with the complexity of transactions, even if they're democratizing access to what has otherwise been sophisticated financial products, people will need help. And the existing tax system, we've learned a lot from it, but we're entering into a new paradigm. So we have to think about things a little differently. And and at, the, at those early years, it was just writing submissions. Um, sometimes we got invited to the roundtables. There, there might've been one or two to have another conversation to clarify um, with those policymakers you know, the strength of our recommendations, how urgent they were compared to other competing policy priorities. And and that's that was my insight into this bureaucratic and political process of materiality, you know, topic of the day, as, as important as you think the issues are for sections of humanity and, and our economics, you could just get overruled the next day. So writing the submissions down became very important. So as a point in time reflection of what you were saying, it's a good thing to come back to. And since then, we've had many other consultation periods come up. We've again put written submissions down and we haven't had law change yet in Australia apart from the GST digital currency change and the AML CTF Act to bring in digital currency exchange recognition. But this bigger stuff, it's going to take years. We are talking about it more. I'm still not sure that it's a political priority yet, but being involved in the policy conversation, I think is a good risk mitigant for lawyers to also understand the potential directions that things could be going in and help navigate um, the regulatory risk for their clients. And not just for lawyers, but also builders in the space. Like they've got the tools, they're ready to deploy certain products, but the law's just not there yet to protect them. So I've noticed that, for instance, the mycelium guys are contributing to some of the zero knowledge submissions you guys have been making. And that's 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 the best that they can do right now. They're at the forefront of, of understanding their obligations and how they might be able to, I guess, extrapolate them from existing law to apply it to their own context. But mm. I think one area that's really interesting and that you've made a submission on is that in the Web3 environment, there can't be the same need for data points around someone's identity. Now, there are going to be risks with collecting less data and there's necessary reasons for collecting all those data points. But are you able to speak to sort of what you mean around why individuals shouldn't have to provide all this data, including like their address and how this technology might be able to still provide the security that we need when transacting um, in Web3? Mm. Well, so we have grown up in a regime where there is a desire to collect the personal information as a deterrent to stop people engaging in activity like money laundering and terrorism financing, that having to provide that information up front will de deter you because that activity can be surveilled and it can be followed. Obviously, we still have cash, which, which allows a lot of that activity to continue to perpetuate. 
But also from a tax perspective, there are heavy information collection obligations as well. So people don't avoid their taxes, that the trail can be followed to bring in somebody's tax activities that are subject to tax in a particular jurisdiction. So I think that those deterrent objectives are still really important, but what this technology is showing us we are capable of is that we, we can do things like zero knowledge proofs, which was the ZKKYC paper I wrote with Jack Deeb from Mycelium, Peter Powles from Chainlink, and Peter Brawns from Silvergate Bank. And we wrote this paper as a follow-on to an initial ZKKYC paper that Peter Powles did because in the discussions with the money laundering regulators and, and terrorism financing regulators, they just said, well, F have got these recommendations for VASPs, which which carry in this, this obligation to collect personal information. And, and to a greater extent, the originator and the beneficiary information need to be collected and shared between multiple agencies around the world. And, and this over-collection of personal information in an environment where centralized organizations continue to be worried about cybersecurity, data breaches, and then individuals can suffer, um, if, can suffer harm if that information is leaked to the public or enough information is leaked to the public. We just said we needed to consolidate our thoughts and there was no consultation asking us to do this, but we needed to write it down what a concept of, of ZK, ZKKYC could look like. Um, as a method of informing regulators and policymakers alongside what was going on with the FATF and, and with the VASP and virtual asset recommendations. And now the OECD crypto tax reporting framework, which has been released and it piggybacks, assuming that the FATF um, VASP recommendations will be implemented by the countries effectively as is of October last year. And, and Web3 community, um, we have activated around the world to say, no, we don't agree with this basis. Um, at least buy the Web3 community some time to show you how these technologies can evolve so that we can be more privacy preserving and privacy enhancing. And, and the, the kicker here, though, is with ZKKYC, there's still the collection of that personal information, but it's encrypted. It's not shared with the entity at the time, but it tells you, yes, this person is from Australia or not, or they have got a criminal record or not. Whatever the key data inputs are, that's what you code in to be the proof. And then with the likes of what we're getting out of Elliptic and Chainalysis and, and other innovation going on with analytics, we move to an environment of know your transaction or know your behavior or know your wallet address. And that's what is a suspicious matter worthy of unencrypting the vault information, so to speak, at the time that the suspicion arises. So it's, it's putting that new paradigm in written form in front of the regulators and policymakers, and that paper has been shared widely. But like I said, no government was prioritising the collection of, of that sort of information material. Uh, so we just went and wrote it because we thought it was important. I think, yeah, zero knowledge proofs are one of probably the more exciting aspects of this technology in terms of how it can allow people to transact, but only offering certain information. And I think there are arguments around, well, you know, do people trust each other less if they don't know basic things like who they are, where they live, that sort of thing, which I think is, is a separate discussion, but there are going to be use cases where you just don't need that information. Yeah, there is, there is a worry that 
bad market behaviour will occur, and we don't know to what extent, if we don't know who comprises of the market. So bad or unintentionally bad behaviour could be made or supported by not knowing. But again, we, we haven't proved it to know, or we haven't had sandbox environments to test that to know. So it's a blanket claim at this stage, and it's a worthy risk to consider as we go forward into this new paradigm. But I don't think that it means we can't explore other options for consumers and projects to have the choice. Yeah. Well, today's been a very interesting journey. Um, as much as it would be amazing to hear that you've dreamed up everything that you know about this space, I think for, for the listeners that are perhaps lawyers or people that are, I guess, intimately touched by some of the topics that you've talked about today, where do you look for um, your insights from a legal perspective? Do you look to different regimes that you think are more progressive than others? What do you reference to, to build your understanding? Well, I have some guiding principles of the four or five things that are really important. So that is digital identity. It is moving to auto tax principles. Um, gender and diversity is always a big one. The same with DAOs, legal recognition of DAOs to encourage that economic freedom and economic innovation to keep occurring. So with those general themes, there's a, a flood of information always that comes through the LinkedIn feed, the Twitter feed, other discords that I'm a part of, like Bankless DAO is a really good one that you know you, you get broad coverage of, of the key issues and things that people are building. And I kind of balance it between what are the policy papers being released out of the UK, European Union level, the US, Singapore and Hong Kong, as well as what's being built and what the builders are saying. So especially around verifiable credentials and digital identity, I still try to link in with those startups and those projects and those communities and follow what they're saying and the, the actual problems that they're trying to solve and look at, you know, how would I maybe give them more support from a storytelling or from policy clarity perspective. So there's a ground up and then a top down approach. And then I, I try with whatever I commit to writing down, um, what's the most powerful piece of writing that we can do into which forums and with what people. And, and to sort of flesh that out, I'm part of a couple of global groups of crypto lawyers and once a month meet and, and it's just checking in with those lawyers, the crypto literate ones, they've, been, they've also been in the space for years, getting their strategic insights on what are early thoughts or half-baked thoughts is also a helpful environment to figure out what to articulate into writing or to do in a working. Cool. And you have a Discord, an extension of your broader business. Um, so talk to us briefly about that and then close out with where people can find and follow you. Well, um, so the business name is Blockchain and Digital Assets Services Plus Law. Before I added the law, it was badass, but now I think it's bedazzle. <laughs> and so I try to spend most of my time distilling insights in the Discord server. And, and so the channels are organized according to DAO policy, tax policy, insurance, categories that seem to make sense. So jump in and, and read and contribute where you can. I'm not the most frequent poster on Twitter, but I'm trying to, to be involved in more Twitter spaces. And there's been a few tax-focused ones that I've been doing with Boot and Jameson that, that people can listen into. 
LinkedIn is, is where I have been posting more. So the thread of insights and what I share there is a good thing to read and catch up on, not just from an Australian perspective, but globally what's what's going on and I think is important worth sharing. And on, on the Bedazzle website, so www.badasl.com is where I also try to keep updated all of the submissions and papers that I've written, as well as free webinars that are available for people to learn and, and skill up. So in terms of being in the community, I think we're seeing in real life events slowly come back. I'm based in Melbourne, so I'll, I'll support a lot more of those ones and frequently in Sydney, but trying to, to visit Brisbane, Tassie, Perth, South Australia. We're not seeing much happen out of the Northern Territory yet, but um, just ping me if something's going on. Um, I'll try and see if I can support it and, and also share it on social media to get some support around it and build that in real life community again. Not sure how you're allocating your time across all these pursuits and um, obviously the massive impact that you're having, Joni, I think it's awesome specifically for me as a former law student that's now working in technology. It's been awesome to follow your progress and I guess your leadership in this space. So thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Hunter. Hunter.